Well, it sounds like there's multiple frogs going on there. I feel like there's yeah. little squeaky ones in the background, and then there's this wonderful hooting frog. <laughs> Mate, I'm impressed that you clocked that. That's really good. Yeah, so you're quite right. There's two... I think you're focusing on the kind of awoo sound rather than yeah. the... That feels more... That could be anything for all, like the hooting frog. Now that is a distinctive, distinctive noise. Do I get any sort of clue? <laughs> I mean, I can give you some clues. I'll be totally honest with you. I'd never heard of this frog. Okay. This audio clip was sent to us by Seb. So thanks, Seb. Apparently it's his favourite frog call. Completely get that. Well, that's understandable. It's yeah. What about if I was to tell you that when it's making this noise... The video this noise came from was captured after rain. So it was making a noise after rain. And oh. they float on the surface of the water. They're floaters. What? Okay. So somewhere with substantial rain and also enough like rain on the surface to for flo- floating frogs. Oh my gosh. I think if it's super dependent on rain, I think it's going to be something sort of subtropical, maybe getting caught by some monsoon sort of scenarios maybe i'm gonna go for it's the owl frog of yucatan peninsula no a good guess a good guess although sadly a frog you've invented this is the (laughs) crucifix frog notoden benetii they're hilarious little guys you know them the crucifix frogs i think so yeah 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 are they an australian one yes they are yeah yeah Mm. new south wales yeah Oh, they're dead. Oh, yeah. New South Wales and the interior of southern Queensland. And, um, yeah, they're quite cool because they're brightly coloured. Yeah, they're a very rain frog. Oh, totally. Um, shaped frog. Yeah, properly Incredible round. colours, really. I mean, that is a unnatural... I mean, obviously it's not unnatural. It's naturally occurring on a frog. But it is almost like a highlighter fluorescent yellow on them. And you'll Incredible. be pleased to hear... Scientists refer to the call as a whoop. It is a whoop. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. And and you mentioned it looks kind of like a rain frog. That's because they are like, they very seldom come out. They spend the vast majority of their lives underground. They only emerge after heavy rain where they're drawn to water and they breed in temporary pools once it's rained. And as I said, the males call while floating in the pools. So literally you just see their like sort of pouch expand. Yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. And then after they've mated, well, during, you know, the fertilization is outside the body uh, being an amphibian. Not always the case, but for frogs, yes. And so even then, probably not always. Like most amphibians. Frogs are a mysterious and diverse group. Yeah. (laughs) Let's say like most frogs, the fertilization goes on of the eggs in the water, male on top of the female in amplexus. Eggs come out, eggs get fertilized. And the tadpoles, not that much is known about their development, but it's basically the only thing we do know is that they develop very quickly because the temporary ponds that these frogs are mating in tend not to stick around very long. So the tadpoles are kind of in this race against time to become a frog before Quick. it dries up. Yeah, that must be a horrifying childhood for those tadpoles yeah i mean growing up's not easy for any species yeah but but (laughs) potentially more so for this frog whose very existence depends on its ability to grow fast i imagine the competition for whatever it is they're eating doesn't seem like we know but whatever it is they're eating they need to get eating get growing (laughs) apparently one other thing they have 
is uh, the males ex- exude this tacky and elastic frog glue. And uh, that's when you bother it, that sort of comes out. But then no one's really sure. It could be like a deterrent for predators. But mm-hmm. That's quite a classic like frog deterrent for predators, isn't it? A sort of unpalatable gamminess. Yeah. yeah. Apparently they also use it to stick themselves onto the females when they're mating. Mm. But yeah, not quite sure. Yeah, apparently it even works in wet. It's quite a miracle sticky substance. Sticky regardless of whether it's dry or wet. And they eat mostly ants and termites. Ah, uh, Mamecophagus. <laughs> Good choice. Wow. Just off the top of his head. Brilliant. Okay, that's uh, there we go then. So that was the Crucifix Toad, Notoden Bonetti, and yeah, beautiful creature. So... I'm Tom Major. Co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall, and you're listening to Herpetological Highlights, the podcast about reptile and amphibian science. And we've got a paper today about invasive chameleons. So this is by Whiting, Holland, Kjof, Noble, Rankin, and Stuart Fox, published this very year in 2022, hot off the press. And it's entitled Invasive Chameleons Released from Predation Display More Conspicuous Colors. And that is published in Science Advances. Pretty much a month old. <laughs> yeah, it's a young paper. So uh, I just like the journal Science Advances because it's like, obviously, you know, it's about advances in science. We're reporting on advances in science, but you could also read it as like a statement. Science Advances. Ideally, yes. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. I might start a, a rival journal called Science Regresses. Oof. Negative. Each subsequent paper it publishes is worse than the last, and the results are shakier and shakier. (laughs) A noble cause. So uh, the idea behind this paper is that you're moving a species to a new place, right? And we're always talking about invasive predators. We were in the last episode. We were talking about foxes and cats causing chaos. A lot of the time it's because these are important conservation issues, but also they are sort of unfortunately fortunately whatever the correct word is really neat scenarios to study because you're never going to actually want to well unless you're insane move an animal into a completely novel environment just to see what happens that would be mad but as it's happened already you can still study the really cool things that might be happening and that sort of gives you hints at how these animals are adapting and reacting and how other animals are reacting and adapting Mm -hmm. to their novel uh uh, yeah neighbors novel neighbors yeah it's enemies fun fun bit of alliteration yeah totally mate like you think of invasive species and it's oh it's crazy it's exciting look are these animals going to evolve in response to this new threat and you're right it's not ethical to just chuck a bunch of like tigers down and see how the local animals react they're gonna it's unethical it's irresponsible it's a kind of insane experimentation but as you said this kind of thing where chameleons get to hawaii it's a natural playground was it 1972, it says? Yeah, they actually know a lot about how Jackson's... So we're talking about Jackson's chameleons and they got to Hawaii back in, as you said, 1972. There was one shipment of Jackson's chameleons and these are Troceros jacksoni and the subspecies is Xantholophus. Xantholophus. Yeah. And there was thought to be less than 36 individuals and they got posted from Kenya 
over to Hawaii on the island of Oahu, destined for the pet trade, right? They were destined to be kept as pets by people in Hawaii. But when they arrived, the person who ordered them had a look in the box and thought, man, my chameleons are looking a bit knackered. What can I do to help them get a bit of pep? I know what I'll do. I'll put them outside in the trees and bushes and let them just have some insects, maybe rehydrate in the nice rainforesty environment. And what do you know? They didn't just wait around to be recaptured. They dispersed and they set about becoming an invasive species in Hawaii. I mean, it's a ludicrously irresponsible thing to have done, but it also quite nicely serves how like few individuals are needed to establish a founding population. Oh, yeah. Like, I would not have guessed that 36 could have, you know, made a go of it the way they have. But then that was also me being ignorant of how ludicrously rapid these chameleons can breed. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know... What were they you, you say it's irresponsible, Ben, but the 70s were a different time. I wouldn't know. Yeah, I wouldn't know either. And yet here we are, with Jackson's chameleons surrounding, <laughs> covering Hawaii. We're living in the, the shadow of a 1972 mistake. Yes. But, and while we're talking about Jackson's chameleons, what do they look like? Sorry, just to put numbers on that rapid growth ring. Nine, what was it? Nine to 12 month generation time. 50 young each like as a as a what's what's that what's the clutch what's the, a brood clutch. is that the correct word clutch clutch yeah clutch for 50 eggs but then i think a lot well, of comedians can lay multiple clutches as well but i don't want to overcomplicate things what would you call it a clutch if it's live birth oh are these guys live bearing i mean that's what it says it oh, says live birth are. up to 50 young awkward didn't know that okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah hey that's a lot of chameleons every nine to 12 months. Yeah, just getting pumped out. Yeah. And what do they look like? Jackson's chameleons, they're these medium-sized, bright green chameleons. Well, they're, both their size and colour is actually pretty variable, but generally speaking, they're medium-sized, bright green, and they're native to woodlands and forests at relatively high altitude, 1,600 metres and up in south-central Kenya and northern Tanzania. And... They're famously three-horned, and I have to say, Ben, they're among the coolest-looking little chameleons ever. They're like little triceratops, yeah. and particularly the males. The females sometimes have horns, but they usually, if they have them, they're much smaller. But the genus is actually called Triceros, which of course means three-horned, although now a lot more species have been described in that genus, and many of them don't have three horns, which is a bit awkward. <laughs> but nevertheless, for at least this species, it's pretty cool that they have it three is, horns. Yes. And yeah, Triceratops jacksoni, the Jackson's chameleon. I mean, one of the cool things, I think it's important to sort of contextualize. Chameleons are famous for their like bright colors. They like battling with each other. And when they battle, they go with kinds of mad colors. And there's a lot of communication tied up in that coloration. You know, we've mm -hmm. talked about uh, veiled chameleons in the past where the males can really tell if they're going to win or lose a fight just by looking at their opponent. It kind of like sometimes Honest doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. If you're a chameleon who is stacked, you look the business and the other chameleons are like, geez, okay, not going to muck around with that guy. Whether or not that's the case for Jacksons, I don't know, but it is the case in other species. And so there's a lot of communication tied up. And when they fight, what will happen is the two males will come along. They'll find themselves nearby to each other. They'll just get angry. And, uh, yeah, they just kind of ram their heads against each other with their horns. Sometimes their horns even stab each other. And the photos in this paper are very cool. 
really awesome just like these tiny little triceratop guys going going at it on the branches and when one loses a fight it'll go dark brown the shame colors and if one wins it'll be like so brightly colored it'll be like pumped and obviously the females are like pretty intrigued by those bright colors similarly if there's a predator they'll sometimes change color and i don't know that they've done it before with jackson's chameleons but lots of other chameleons they sort of try and look less conspicuous compared to the background if they're presented with a predator so like say you're a chameleon under dark green background if a predator comes along you might try and go a bit more dark green so it's less mm-hmm. likely to spot you so you, but you've set up this wonderful trade-off then between being the brightest shiniest chameleon around and well, that's great for male-male competition and potentially courtship stuff. But then it might be really awful when, you know, a predatory bird is flying overhead and manages to spot this wonderful chameleon's bright yellow-green courtship and will swoop down and consume said chameleon and therefore that lo- that win turns into a rather dramatic loss. Yeah, totally. So, harsh trade-off. How do you balance that? You'd balance it with evolution. Right. Carefully tuned with the sort of trade-off and, and it keeps potential. you know, that predator pressure is theorised to keep the sort of sexual selection pressures being brighter and brighter and brighter under check. Yep. You can't get too sexy, otherwise you get munched. And yeah. there's actually good evidence for this. They brought up a paper in this uh, about guppies where in oh, Trinidad... Yeah. In Trinidad, in the streams where guppies live, they basically just mill about in the streams. Some of them live upstream, some of them live downstream. And the ones that live downstream are faced with a lot more predators. There's a lot more big fish around in the kind of downstream mm-hmm. areas, whereas guppies can live quite high up and where not too many big predators live. So they did this, I guess, kind of a dubious experiment where they took some guppies from downstream and put them upstream and then they watched them for a year and they compared their colors as a population before and after and what they found was that the guppies got significantly more orange in their bodies after just a year which is like three generations for guppies so even in just one year that release from the pressure of predation had meant that the sexual selection was much more important the males were going brighter and brighter and there was nothing eating the brightest ones so the whole population became brighter as a whole as a result of just one year released from the pressure of living downstream yeah that is important to highlight is you you know people think of sort of evolution and these these natural selection sort of processes occurring quite slowly but if you've got a really intense pressure things can pretty rapidly change especially you know i highlighted the the speed of jackson chameleon reproduction so you have a lot of offspring that can have a lot of i was gonna say a lot of variety but when you're starting from 36 there's only so much variety you can you know there's only so much genetic diversity there but a lot of selection is going to push it quite rapidly one way or another isn't it exactly so they're now in there we've moved our chameleons from kenya Dumped them in Hawaii. They've escaped, sort of. Well, they were, they were let, let out, loose. really. They were pretty much let loose, yeah. <laughs> they didn't really have to try, did they? They were just chilling out in the box, and next thing you know, they're in the bush. But thankfully for them, I suppose, not thankfully for the insects of Hawaii, there aren't many predators hanging around on Hawaii capable of taking down a uh, Jackson's chameleon. So, while in Kenya you had this trade-off between sexual selection sort of stuff, male, male. Making them bright. and Yep, pushing them bright. There's now 
no longer any benefit or dramatically reduced benefit for being uh, duller. Like you don't need it. You you can just be as bright. Bright has all the benefits. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In Kenya, you've got all sorts of things that want to munch them. You've got snakes, lizards, raptors, other bird predators. Whereas, yeah, in Hawaii, it's just a land of not a lot, really. There's a few like birds and stuff, but compared to Kenya, there's very little in the way of predators for these guys. So that was the sort of game plan they had for this study. They had chameleons from Hawaii. They had some from Kenya, uh, sampled from an area that they think was the originating population for the ones that got shipped over. And they presented these chameleons with various... Uh, what's the right word? Stimuli, I suppose, would be yeah. the generic term for all of them. One of them was an additional male chameleon to test the how bright do you get when you're presented with a, another male and you need to compete. One was presenting a male with a female to see how bright they get for the courtship display sort of angle. One was a, what was it? It was an African cuckoo hawk or something along those lines, I is believe. That real, is that the name of a real bird? African it sounds like they hawk. couldn't settle on a name for it, so yeah. they just called it everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's being presented a bird predator. Well, what's going to happen? And oh, yeah. Also, well, it's like a cuckoo, but it's also, well, it's from Africa, but I guess it's kind of hawkish. <laughs> mate, I mean, just a little picture. It's got cuckoo stripes and like a cuckoo head, but it's a hawk. So <laughs> it's a good I'm name, not going to question. That's even if it is a hawk. I don't know. It does look like a cross between the two. It's a very jazzy bird. I'll admit that it might be lazy combining two different animals to name your third animal, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in this case, I'm, I'm relatively convinced. And the last one, they had a replica boom slang to uh, present to the chameleons as well. And um, yeah, see how they react. What did they measure, measure color-wise? The color stuff always blows my mind. The, uh, yeah, well, I think briefly, they basically just measure the brightness contrast and the what they call the chromatic contrast, which is basically just like how differently colored are they from the background. Right. And, what and they, they measure there? that. JND is like just noticeable differences. So they kind of um, work out using models of predator vision what predators can differentiate against. And so right. they then call those just noticeable difference. So it's like a scale where like, I think one is like, it's noticeable or whatever basically it's like a degree of noticeability mm -hmm. so it's sort of a scale of how easily predators can differentiate between the chameleons and the background and they split up color and brightness just for like i think it gets a bit too complicated otherwise yes well it always does seem like there's a lot going on with all you know reflectant and color and contrast and yeah. you know they've got different bits of color on different parts of their body so you need to be measuring the whole animal but in different sections and it there's a lot there is a lot yeah, they kind of don't worry too much about this and that in this paper. They just point a spectrometer at it on its flank. Like, yeah, <laughs> so what's the general finding is that the ones in Hawaii are basically remaining brighter in all, all scenarios, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. They are just brighter. They're just they're brighter, they're much brighter, and they're also much more chromatically contrast from the background than chameleons in Kenya. And that goes for when they're courting. It goes for when they're having a male-male combat. It goes for when they are presented with a bird. It goes for when they're presented with a snake in terms of brightness. The only time they didn't 
look noticeably different between the Hawaii population and the Kenya population was in the presence of a snake in terms of their chromatic contrast. So they didn't change color to basically they didn't. It's not so much change color. It's like in the presence of a snake, they are not different compared between Hawaii and Kenya. And I suppose that could just be a suggestion that those particular chameleons don't really worry about hiding from snakes via color. Right. That's the kicker, isn't it? Is that potentially snakes aren't using color as a cue for finding them and therefore there's no point putting in any effort to change that. Yeah. Yeah. The snake's probably like, yeah, I don't need to see you. I can smell you. Although, yeah. I don't know, boom slang. I think it's quite important to mention they, they're talking about boom slangs and they presented the chameleon with a boom slang t- to see w- what its color was when there was a boom slang about. But the model of predator vision they used was actually a garter snake. So... It could be that actually they're hiding a bit better from their native predators, but we don't have good mm. sort of like color quantification for the specific species boom slang. Yeah, I feel like that's something that comes up in these papers a lot is like you have quite a limited number of predator vision examples, but yeah. you know, you've, what are you going to do? You're like that's the, that's the best you're going to get. And oh, yeah. what's interesting and it, is it's, it's there. It's, 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 it's <laughs> you know, the differences are still there. Even if there's one that sort of pops out and being like, oh, maybe it doesn't matter for snakes. Eh. I mean, the key takeaway still really stands out. And that's that these Hawaiian Jackson's chameleons are liberated from these predators that are blocking their glorious green-orange pigmentation and keeping them cowering in the brown, dull shadows. And now they can truly be as bright and beautiful as they desire. It's deeply inspiring. Yeah. yeah. Just be a chameleon. Don't worry about what the, I guess, African predators, you know, the haters, the haters, yeah. predators are haters <laughs> in this situation. Just be bright, be yourself. Yeah. It's great. It's really cool. And I mean, the fact that in pretty much all cases, it's very obvious that these Hawaiian chameleons are just, yeah, blatantly more obvious to predators. <laughs> they just don't need to care and obviously they're not actually caring it's like there's been quite a few generations as you've described since the 70s right in that time there hasn't the brightest ones haven't been getting eaten so they're proliferating because they're the sexiest of the females it's literally that simple that's the suggestion isn't it they don't actually have the mechanism penned down because they're not you know they haven't looked at the sort of genetics of it and id'd the traits that are driving it or whatever because they do mention that potentially it's a founder effect so maybe those 36 that arrived were just naturally brighter than the ones in Kenya. They pretty much argue against that because there's no reason to sort of think that they would be. Like I said, you know, maybe there was some selective collection for the Petre stuff, but it doesn't seem likely because when you're collecting them, they're not going to be showing that brightness. But And it's only 36, so the idea that there would be, you know, you're going out, and you say there's a population of 2,000 chameleons there, and you pick 36. If you were to pick, like, the 36 brightest, that'd be exceptionally unlikely unless the reason you found those 36 were because they were the brightest. Like, that's such a small sample out of something so dramatic, it would be very surprising if it was all founder and founder-driven by selective collection. Is it? I'm glad they brought it up because it's kind of interesting. I mm. totally get why they don't think it's likely though yeah i agree i think you're right it's good to consider because absolutely when you're taking such a small percentage of a population it's not impossible that that 
particular small bit has traits which aren't representative of the whole, but for reasons you've described, chiefly among them, the fact that comedians are mostly caught at night. Right. Because they are... At night, they just go to the ends of twigs and sticks and just wait wait out the night. And uh, Artificial light sort of makes them pop, right? In the darkness. Yeah, exactly. You shine like a they torch They have different it. luminance to surrounding vegetation so you can spot them easier. Yeah, you shine a torch in the trees. It's like, <laughs> there he is. But yeah, and so because of that, at night, they're not displaying their brightest coloration. So the collectors wouldn't have been able to tell how bright they were when they caught them. They just caught 36. Right. And yeah, they use the stick method, right? Where you basically just have... Your chameleon, you spotted it high up in the trees. Sometimes six meters away, they were collecting chameleons for this study. And then they have the long extendable pole, you know, like a telescopic fishing rod type thing. And then once it's fully telescoped, you poke the chameleon, you give it a little wiggle near its legs. And it's like, oh, and then it just instinctively clambers aboard. And then you've captured it. Easiest capture ever. Yeah. (laughs) And it's not particularly a capture method, which is going to favor you picking out brightest ones for what you just said so yeah yeah it does seem very likely that uh, the relaxing the relaxation of uh, predator pressure has resulted in brighter fancier jackson's chameleons occupying hawaii yep it really does and just one more thing to add we talked about them being released from sort of visual predators their main predator in hawaii is actually another invasive species it's the cats and cats don't have very good color discrimination, so they probably wouldn't be exerting the predator pressure on coloration that you'd expect right. from native predators. But like a brightness thing, a, a reflectance thing, could potentially be useful, though. Mm, yeah. Even if it's not color. True. Who knows? The plot thickens. Yeah. But there we go. I mean... Quite clear evidence that for whatever reason, be it released from predator pressure, which seems likely or other, the chameleons in Hawaii are just not really making much effort to hide from their predators, which could be because they don't have any anymore. Yeah, fascinating little accidental uh, uh, study environment. I don't know, natural experiment? Deeply unnatural experiment? I can't wait to see more things like this where I guess it's kind of unusual to think of an invasive species as prey rather than predator. They're usually predators, aren't they? Although I suppose the cane toads prey, and we've looked at a host of papers of how they influence yeah. the and behavior and evolution of their predators. A lot, I think, are mesopredators too. Mm. Like rats arguably are not just predator or prey. In some scenarios, they're definitely just predator. But um, in a lot of scenarios, they're just both. <laughs> yep. And there's plenty of invasive plants out there. Huge numbers of invasive plants, but that's a completely different question again. Yeah. Loads of invasive birds like sparrows. They're not really, I suppose they're predators, you know, taking bugs and things. So, miso. Miso once again, because they're definitely being consumed. Yeah, for sure. Sparrows, notably tasty. So, have you got any other business to round off our episode on invasive chameleons? I have no any other business whatsoever once again no i haven't got anything either so i guess that all that remains to be said is thank you for listening and if you want to get in touch with us you can herphighlights at gmail.com or we're on social media and if you'd like to contribute to the podcast you can become our patron at patreon.com slash herphighlights thank you very much to all the patrons massive thank you yeah right on great that's it thank you for listening thanks for listening